I wanna be a billionaire. I ain't getting no sleep till I see a million every week. I wanna be a billionaire. I ain't getting no sleep till I see a billion every week. I wanna be a billionaire. Billionaire, I wanna be a billionaire. Billionaire, I wanna be a billionaire. I ain't getting no Ladies and gentlemen, how you doing? Welcome to another episode of Sleep is for Billionaires, the podcast. I am your host, Johnny Vegas. Now today, I have a very special guest on my show. This man is a leader in the entertainment marketing industry for like the past 20 years. Current voting member at the Recording Academy for the past like 15 years and running. You know, currently holds 12 Grammy certificates for working in marketing with various artists we're going to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, Thornell Jones Jr. Thank you, sir. I like that intro. Hey, I did my homework. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I did my homework for you, man. Well, you know, always got to be prepared. Hey, always got to be prepared. Exactly, man. I can't be looking crazy out here, man. Absolutely not. <laughs> so how you doing, my brother? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a crazy week. We are, you mentioned the Grammys. We are in the beginning of Grammy season now. We have, um, most people just know the show mm -hmm. in February, right, or January, when they, depending on when they schedule it. Um, but there's a whole process that the entries have to go through before it even make it to the nominations mm -hmm. and before the nominations become the final award for recipients. So um, I actually joined the Recording Academy in 2000. Mm. And um, most of the pe members of the Recording Academy are people who are musicians, singers, producers, engineers, people who actually make the music. Right. Because it's the recording academy. It only makes right. sense to have those involved. Um, but then there's support people who can act, who also actually um, can become members of the recording academy. Uh, journalists who write liner notes, mm -hmm. uh, designers who do package design, things mm -hmm. of that nature. Back in the day, Executives used to become voting members by like getting giving themselves credits for like hand claps and stuff like that. What? <laughs> right? Until the academy was just like, like uh, you still do that because I can clap my way to the top. No, 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 no. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make a contribution. So yeah. I I learned pretty early in my career about this this that if I was involved in the packaging design piece of it, which is an, extent, an extension of marketing, mm -hmm. that I could become a voting member. So that's what I did. And by 2000, I got my last two credits that I needed in order to become a voting member. I became a voting member. And, uh, and then the next year, I got invited to be on a bunch of committees. Mm. And so I served on a bunch of committees for about 13 years. Um, chaired the committee for a couple of years, like three years in a row, like five, six, seven, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I really learned that whole process. And I tell people that being a member of the Recording Academy transformed my career. Um, right. I try to tell people, it's just like, you know, people, oh, the Grammys, whatever, like that. And then they get, they're salty when they, you know, when it doesn't turn out the way they want it to. But it's the only peer voted award. Everything else is essentially a sales award, mm -hmm. an airplay award, or a popularity contest. Right. This is a peer voted award. So mm -hmm. it's other musicians, other producers, other engineer people who are involved in the making of the music who vote on their peers. Mm -hmm. um, so I tell people, you know, it's like the perfect example. Last week, I was um, I was at an event and uh, I saw Big John Platt. Now, Big John Platt was just promoted to be the CEO of the largest 
publishing company in the world. Wow. So Sony ATV. Mm -hmm. Big John is like six foot five black man. Okay. Right. And um, we're cool because we used to sit next to each other in these committee meetings. Mm -hmm. And he saw me and comes across the room and talk to me. Yeah. I was going there to kiss the ring. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, this is, you know, being in the room with Jimmy Jam, being in the room who was at one point the chairman of the Recording Academy. Right. Being in the room with, uh, you know, big A&R like Sean, um, um, Tubby, mm -hmm. um, you know, Kaiwan Prather, um, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. you know, big publicists and, you know, managers, Michael Perrin. And, uh, I, I met um, Beyonce's daddy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, Matthew Knowles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of my buddies in the industry is Michael Malden. Okay. Who's, uh, you know, JD's daddy. Oh, okay. But he was president of Black Music for Columbia. Uh -huh. And was responsible for signing Beyonce okay. and, as Destiny's Child. Nice. So, anyway, being in the room with these people, you know, it just, I just, it just transformed my career. So, not everybody will have the experience that I've had. But, like, you know, what, whatever your path and your journey is, you always need a leg up. And to me, this is not supposed to be necessarily an a, a ad for the Recording Academy, but really, really, because it's something I'm very actively involved in right now mm -hmm. in this season. Mm -hmm. It's very top of mind. Mm -hmm. So I really think that one of the reasons why I've been able to sustain my career as long as I have mm -hmm. um, is because of my relationships, and a lot of them stem from my experience in the, with the Recording Academy. No, that's awesome, man. Like I said, I was interested in uh, joining as well. I was looking through their requirements, and I meet a lot of them, you yeah, know. You so, so I just want to make sure that I can get in. So I'm going to go through that process as well. And hopefully, since I know you, you know, I've got a shoe in. Well, you, you, know, know. <laughs> you know what it is? It's just you know, having somebody to coach you through, you know, the the application process mm -hmm. and making sure that you're checking all the boxes and stuff like that. And I absolutely know the folks in national membership and also the regional membership. And cool. it's amazing you know to have been around as long as I have been and some of the people who you met when they've just got in the industry mm -hmm. are now like running things wow. so like you know the, the executive director of the Los Angeles chapter of the recording Academy right. Academy is mm -hmm. a woman who was an assistant in A&R Epic in 1998 mm. and you know I, that was like her first job in the industry and that's my girl yeah, yeah, yeah. right <laughs> so I was like yeah, da, 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 da. yeah, yeah. okay throw down and I'm like, it's really cool to see people come in, plant their feet, plant their seeds, water their seeds, mm -hmm. and watch it flourish and grow. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting um, time. It's an interesting time. Um, you can't. I. And like the last year of the baby boom generation, so mm -hmm. they would, at one time I was like, oh, baby boom, right? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Generation X, I'm, oh, I'm Generation X, right? Yeah, yeah. And now, like, you know, the millennials come and like starting to run things, and I'm like, you see, the thing about this is there is a tendency for people to put people out the pasture. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I've always just felt like, you know, I'm vibrant, I'm creative, I'm I'm vital. You know, why would I ever want to put out the pasture? So one of the things that I do that takes up actually quite a bit of my time mm -hmm. is I'm an instructor in marketing and other music business stuff at Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Nice. And uh, when I was uh, head of marketing for Hidden Beach, uh, my boss would always say to me, 
because I used to deal with the interns. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered teaching? And I would be like, no. <laughs> Mostly because there's this adage that floats, that's floating out there that I will say is not true. Uh -huh. And they say, those who can do and those who can't mm -hmm. teach. Right. I was like, so basically you want to put me out the pasture? Right. You, know, you know? Well, when back in the day we used to do it this way. I'm like, no, no, that's not going to be. Yeah, it's a new day and age. Right. So, yeah. I put, so I was like, never wanted to teach. And then I started thinking about it and I was just like, you know, I think I have something to offer. So I started, um, once again, Recording Academy. Mm -hmm. I ran across a, a colleague of mine who used to do A&R admin for Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. And I met her because we served on the Grammy committee together. Right. And um, she told me that she was the uh, chairman of the music business program at MI. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew about MI because we used to source interns from MI at the label. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, you know, I, I think I'd like to teach a class. Mm -hmm. So we had coffee over the holidays, and I didn't hear anything from her. And then one day, I got a call. <laughs> it was like, yeah, the, the call. Yeah. She was like, hey. Um, you still interested in teaching? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, okay. Uh, well, there's only one. And she said, well, it's digital marketing. Okay. And this, this, this. You know, I was like, I can do that in my sleep. Mm. And then she says, okay, there's only one catch. And I said, like, what's that? She said, it starts next week. And I said, oh, really? So then, <laughs> so we rushed the paperwork. Everything was cool and everything. And I literally started teaching that class like six days from when I spoke to her. And it's now been like almost four years. Congrats, man. That's yeah. so dope. And after like a year, a little after a little, maybe not a little under a year, I was asked to actually write the marketing curriculum for the associate's degree program. Oh, man. So it's five levels of marketing and social media. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it and I kind of uh, used my marketing methodology, which I call the six channels. Yeah. And I framed it out over six quarters so you understand the methodology, the framework, the methodology, and the specifics. We kind of drill down on each of the six channels. And so there's a, it's interesting. I don't think the students really get it in mm. the beginning. And especially the idea that there's five marketing classes. They used to say, why do we have to take five marketing classes? At because the end, there's levels. Because there's levels. <laughs> and because, because marketing is a very broad thing. Mm. And, you know, it's not just a thing. People usually think, in terms of marketing as tactics. It, in corporate America, mm -hmm. when you say marketing, a lot of times it's just equivalent to advertising. Mm -hmm. That's all that's the marketing they do. It's right. advertising. We're gonna place these ads and you know be targeted about where we place these ads and that's gonna constitute our marketing. Mm -hmm. Whether it's advertising to the trade, the industry, or advertising to consumers. Right. But that's what they do. Right. Right. Marketing is so much broader than that, mm. right? So here my students are talking about, what? Why do we do so much marketing? And at the end, they have come to me and said, okay, we get it now. Wow. So we do a, like a mini kind of like preliminary marketing plan level one, mm -hmm. and then they learn all this other stuff, and they come back, and they do a more robust marketing plan in level five. Mm. And then they, and so then they understand, or, and I'm sure in level one, they're going like, head is spinning. What is all this stuff? Yeah. And at the end, they're like, okay, now we understand how all the pieces fit together. Exactly. So it's really, really cool to see the, the light bulbs go off. Yeah. So I do, I really, I really do enjoy te teaching, but it, it was, it was something that I came to just kind of like, you know, understanding that I've always had this 
you know, mentoring gene or this this thing about, you know, you know, kind of, you know, coaching mm-hmm. or guiding people or uh, I was always an old soul. Mm-hmm. Even Same. as yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I see that. When I was a kid though, like I would my, my, my mom's family's from South Carolina and so my dad he was actually uh, in grad school when we were kids. So mm-hmm. during the school year we were with him and in the summertime we would go down to um, South Carolina to be with my, my mother's family. Mm-hmm. And um, so they had us in a Head Start program and the bus would come pick us up and you know, I would love to know it all. Mm. My grandmother tells a story about how I used to I used to teach the kids. <laughs> I used to try to tell the kids don't say ain't. Don't say don't ain't. say ain't because it ain't in the dictionary. Because yeah, it ain't it's in the, the dictionary. dictionary. <laughs> right, right. And they apparently they tried to beat me up. Oh damn! And my cousin, my cousin had to defend me. Shout out to cousin Charles. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I've always been this guy. I don't. It's just who I am. So nowadays, you know, it becomes a mix of what I do for my clients and what I do in in, in the teaching. And I see that that's my way to kind of clone myself, if mm-hmm. I would, um, by teaching my framework and my approach to marketing. And at the same time, you know, still being able to work with clients that I want to work with. Right. I definitely feel that's uh, you serving your purpose, you know what I'm saying? You sharing your gift from God with the world, you know what I'm saying? And creating more of those that seek to do the things you do. So I mm-hmm. think that's very dope and that's very, uh, you know, that's that's amazing. You're doing amazing work, you know, and just keep doing what you're doing. Because I'm sure it's going to take you on God's path for you, you know? That's a baby. <laughs> okay, we can go way down. The... The interesting thing about that and your reference about God and spirituality has a lot to do with why I do what it is that I do or how I've done it so long. Mm-hmm. Because I know I, that my steps are ordered. You know, I'm, I'm willing to accept that very early on. What, my mom was actually killed in a car accident when I was three years old. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's like one of my biggest fears, man. It's, well, you know, the crazy thing about it is I've had a number of accidents. I had an accident earlier this year that could have taken me out. And I just, I just took it as a sign to slow down. Yeah. You know, me, mm-hmm. personally, just slow down. Because, um, you know, you get out here to Hollywood and, you know, or New York or mm-hmm. Atlanta, wherever it is you're hustling, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're just grabbing, grab, 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 yeah. grab. And I realized, you know what? My life is more important than, you know, a random grab. Right. More important to be more strategic, mm-hmm. right? Thinking things through and being like, okay, this, this is a more strategic move. Um, so I, um, very early in my career, well, go back. My mom passed. Mm-hmm. And for many years growing up, I, even though my fa- grandfather was a pastor of a church and mm-hmm. obviously my grandmother was the first lady and stuff like that and, and when we were down, down in South Carolina it was you know four nights a week at church whether it was choir verse or Bible study or men's group or the fish fry on Friday or the you know it was church was the center of our lives but mm-hmm. you know at one point um, I remember my grandparents came up from South Carolina and so we came down from New York and had dinner big dinner and one of my great aunts was like so do you believe in God <laughs> <laughs> and I was like nope 
and they were all and like all it was like the mm. table got silent yeah. and they were like well how do you not believe in God right 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 and I was like well you know if God was so great you know he wouldn't take my mom and so then people were like okay we get it. well you'll understand in time kind of thing and the truth was they, 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 they came after my dad too they were like how do you teach your children not to believe in God yeah <laughs> and he was like well look I can show them but I can't make them. Right. So they have to come to that understanding in their own time. So I remember it was a big deal in my family. I was about 16. No, actually I was about 17. Because mm-hmm. um, I went to college a year early. Mm. I remember writing a letter to my grandmother. I was like, you know what? I just wanted to let you know that I remember when I was younger, I had some doubts. Mm-hmm. I said, but I really do believe in God. That's what's up. So um, that kind of light bulb went off because I was a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. And I used to go camping, and I, whether I had heard this before, I kind of discovered it myself that communing with nature mm-hmm. is communing with God. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I was in the at the top of this mountain, and um, looked out across the horizon. You know, it was so far off you could see the curvature of the Earth, mm-hmm. and it was at that point I, could, I you know, I got this. I said, "Oh God, we are so small." Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were so mm-hmm. small. Very small. Like a speck. But yeah, I was like, wow, oh God, we are so small. I said, okay, something is bigger than us mm-hmm. that has orchestrated all of this. None of this is random. Yeah. You know, I'm getting chills thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it's a fact, man. Yeah. Me too. So <laughs> when I first got into the industry, I was like, I heard all the stories, the Illuminati, the darkness, the, this, you're selling your soul to the devil, all this kind of stuff. And I was just like... You know, maybe that's all all true, but I know I'm to use the the, the words of the church covered. Mm-hmm. You know, I know my steps are ordered. I know right. it's covered. So I knew from very early on that I was that my gifts were going to be used for good. Mm-hmm. I just I knew that early on. Um, when I first got in the industry out here, yeah, they tried me. Mm. They tried me. They tried me. They tried. The darkness tried me. You care to elaborate? Or you want to keep it? Well, you know? I you just... You don't got a name dropped. No, like well, that. okay. Um, I had a Me Too moment. Mm, okay. I had, a me, I had a Me Too moment. I had people who who tried to dangle carrots. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, no, not so much. Yeah. And fortunately, I was... You know, I've always, like, since I told you when I was a little kid, I was a little smart ass. I was a little smart ass. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily smart ass, but I was definitely really intelligent. Right. And I could see, you couldn't sucker me easily. Yeah. Right? And I'm not easily seduced by baubles. I like nice things, yeah. but I'm like, if I can if I can think through block and tackle, okay, so I do this, that, that, that. There, was, there wasn't, I studied economics as an undergraduate, mm-hmm. right? So I did these cost-benefit analysis, yeah, and I realized yeah, it just yeah. wasn't worth it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> So anyway, um, when I finally got to New York, and I finally was in marketing, you, you know, it was once again, it was just like God ordered my steps. And this lady, she was uh, a uh, a spiritualist, okay. kind of came into my life, and, you know, she had a son. She needed a mentor for her son, and she's... She turned around and was like mentoring me, right? Mm. And she would, late at night, she'd come to the office and she would burn sage. Mm. 
driving out the spirits and stuff. And she'd go to certain people's office and be like, <gasps> yeah. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. She wouldn't even know who they were. Right. And that's, she just felt the she vibe. She just felt the vibe. And she was like, I was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah, stay away from this one. Mm. Watch this one. This one. Uh, and she write all the time? All the time. Okay. All the time. And I was just like, okay. I don't know how you showed up in my life. Mm -hmm. But clearly. You were meant to be here. Meant to be here. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to go with this. <laughs> and, you know, it was crazy because I started. Okay. I'm not supposed to really have a career on this side of the business. Maybe I'm supposed to, but it wasn't. That's not what I what my dream was. Well, what's your dream? You talked a little earlier before we started about how you started writing songs when you were nine, mm -hmm. right? So I won a talent contest with a song I, with a song I wrote at the age of fourteen. Nice. And I was like, I, I was just like, oh, this is this is this is this is going to be it. This is I it, love yeah. the crowd. Now I had been in plays and things of that nature, but this was something that I created. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, this is what I want to do. So all throughout high school, I was like that singer songwriter guy. I was. You know, in today's world, it'd be like I was like John Legend mm -hmm. sitting there playing and singing the song, right? Yeah. Back then, it was I was the Blackberry Manilow. Hey. All my songs were sad. Hey. And that's because I was carrying all sad the sads. <laughs> sad, okay? But it was, you know, it was because I had this, I admit, I was, you know, why people thought I was happy, I really had this really kind of this serious kind of like demeanor. You know, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I lost my mom when I was so young. Mm. But when, when I went to college, I ended up studying economics because it was a head thing. But my heart thing was all about music. Right. So I, when I wasn't in class, I did make the music. Was just music, mm -hmm. right? I remember I had a, like yeah, a same C. Game, yeah. So I had a, like a C on one of my class uh, in like macroeconomics. And I went to the professor, what can I do to get my grade up? Mm -hmm. Partly because if I only got a C, I had to take the class over. Mm -hmm. But partly because I just was that guy. I want to do better. I want to do better. Right. So he says, Thornell, when you're singing on stage at Madison Square Garden, are you anybody who cares you just got to see? And I'm like, I will. So that was where I came from, right? Mm -hmm. So left school, didn't get a job as an investment banker, which was my dream, mm -hmm. at least at that time, for that lane of my life mm -hmm. and I actually ended up going to work for IBM now my dad was an IBMer okay. so in truth I probably could have gotten the job there anyway mm -hmm. but they really liked me they saw that I was a musician mm -hmm. and I remember the guy said oh you're a musician I said yeah he says oh, okay we've got the job I said for real he said yeah because we find that musicians do really well in this job because mm -hmm. music is math and math is technical and we find the musicians thrive in this job. I was like, okay, cool, great. And I did. Yeah. I was president of my marketing class. Nice. Um, you know, I was on fast track to be vice president by the time I was 38. Mm. And I walked away from it to be in the music industry. Well, obviously, I don't, you don't regret that moment, obviously. No, not, right? I don't. And, and in fact, I came out here. Went to business school at UCLA, and after my two-year leave absence, they were like, okay, time to come back. And I was like, no. Mm. And I, I tried to negotiate into a, a role with music companies because I, I, what I told them was IBM needed to be a leader in that arena because computers were going to transform the music industry. Right. So it was 
after the internet was invented in 1983, mm. I was graduating from business school or leaving business school rather in 1989. Mm. Okay, the World Wide Web had yet to be invented, right. even though there was internal networks of companies, but the idea of a World, World Wide, Wide Web, Web had not been invented yet. Mm. That didn't get invented until '94. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the World Wide Web was invented, that began the transformation of things because the culture of the web was the culture of free. Oh, come to my website and I'll give you free this. Procter & Gamble was giving out free boxes of Tide just to come and join their mailing list. Yeah. You know, you go to a website, they're like, oh, here's a new accounting software. You can take it for free. Just give me a good review. So yeah. it was the culture of free. So what was happening? People were started sharing music files because they were free. They were just out there. Right. Right? But then there were people who were amassing huge libraries of files. I mean, millions. I know. I mean, consider that a, Amazon Prime has two million files, and there were people who had seven, 10 million files? So they were the okay. Right, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so this culture of free drove this crisis in the music industry mm -hmm. that I predicted back in 1989, mm. and then Apple, actually did not develop iTunes. They bought a company, rebranded the software, called mm -hmm. it iTunes, mm -hmm. and then took a pole position in the music industry by setting prices and being the conduit, and being the conduit and the basically the savior of the music industry, right? Mm -hmm. Back in 1989, I was talking about it. that's the position that I wanted IBM to be in. Okay, and they didn't see your vision. And they didn't see the vision. Mm -hmm. My boss told me, oh, no, it's all the same. I said, no, it's not all the same. Yeah. Right? He didn't see the future. He didn't see... Right, exactly. So you have to be able to be able to kind of get at 30,000 feet and to see how things are kind of maneuvering or how this thing way over there in the ocean might is eventually going to come on shore. Now, before you move forward, now, that thought process right there, kind of seeing the trend and seeing where it might go, potentially go, how does one acquire that knowledge? Like, how do you have to look at the situation in order to make that type of prediction? Well, if I frame it in terms of advice, I'm going to say you got to read. You got to read a lot. You got to be voracious. You know, you have a voracious appetite for knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because if you're just regurgitating and, and, and kind of mimicking what you see in front of you, you won't be able to see the new trends and the things that are coming. In in the arenas that may affect your own arena. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, and, and technology is a big part of that. Technology has driven the change in the music industry each generation. Mm -hmm. Consider um, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s we had vinyl. Mm -hmm. And then there was the introduction of cassettes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know. CD. And then CD. Mm -hmm. And then CD gave to downloads. Mm -hmm. And then downloads have now Give away to streaming, mm -hmm. right? But the only reason why streaming is even possible is due to this 4G, 5G network mm -hmm. and the fact that you've got this device in your hand, right. your, your smartphone, mm -hmm. which is really a computer, mm -hmm. which is stronger than the computers that put the man on the moon. Right. Right? Yeah. So you have, you have to be able to see how other things are going to be able to impact your environment. Be a student of, just be an avid learner, an avid uh, yeah, search. So about to get some money. Yeah, I think it's what they, yeah, right? They have, I, I, it's funny, I thought that. I was like, oh, a 
Okay, yeah. That's very good. Payday. Friday yeah. too? Right. Hey. No, that's good, man. Yeah, no. Check her early. Check it early. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm definitely, um, I'm all for being a student of the game. Like, knowing the history of things and kind of seeing the trends before our time and then kind of making a prediction going forward. So, I'm all about that, you know. Well, two things. You have to be able to... to Know the landscape, both inside your industry and outside of industry. In, in marketing, one of the key things that, uh, that we teach is a SWOT analysis. Mm-hmm. The notion of knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and then knowing what your opportunities are and what your threats are. Mm-hmm. So strengths and weaknesses are internal to your, your organization, your, your, your being, you know, your skills, talents, gifts, and the people around you. Opportunities and threats are external. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what what situations you can take advantage, of, what technology might be able to take advantage of, and a threat might be, you know, you know how whatever secure position you're in right now might be eroded mm-hmm. by something outside of you. And so, technology is both an opportunity and a threat, depending on how you look at it. Right. So, um, it's really interesting to be in the streaming era now and see. Uh, that music consumption is up, mm-hmm. um, but you know we still have to get. Even though we have better, more secure royalty rates, and we just passed the Music Modernization Act uh, last week, and uh, that's the one that us Smokey Robinson went yes. and spoke for on yeah. behalf of. I mean, right. So, so not to cut you yeah, off. Yeah. So, in regards to the act being placed in 1972, did, did what he proposed pass in regards to everybody getting paid? Prior to 1972? Yeah, the way copyright law works um, is, um, I don't even really know how it got to this point, but recordings that were being broadcast that were uh, published pre-1972 were not subject to broadcast royalties. Mm. So... Basically, oldie stations could play with, you know, play old music and, you know, didn't have to pay. Didn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe that was cool when people were dying at 72, but now that we have a longer life expectancy and the industry has matured, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that wasn't fair to the content owners and content creators of that older repertoire. That was only a piece of the Music Modernization Act. Mm -hmm. But it was important to kind of frame it, um, at least that portion of the bill, Mm -hmm. for... um, uh, as an equitable shift for um, songwriters, and and uh, so um, it's you know anyway. So that that was it's interesting you brought that up. Mm-hmm. I think that for the younger people that I talk to, it's more about how um, uh, a codification of a universal kind of streaming streaming rates because each company has its own um, percentage they pay. Right, and. Um, you know, trying to kind of balance that out and kind of get to a place where everybody's, you know, paying the same thing. Now, I, I've got to admit, I don't know enough about the act to know all the different provisions in it, mm-hmm. but it's generally conceded as a, a kind of step into the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pay us yeah. as artists. <laughs> you know, and, and we're still so far behind, you know, so many other countries in terms of, you know, compensating artists. Yeah. You know, in Canada... Especially with artists sample, like, I feel like they should least pay some type of compensation, you know, to the artists that they're sampling from. Well, we get around that a lot here. The people, even content creators like yourself, are 
can be kind of clever about it by framing it in terms of fair use or frame, framing it in terms of promotional uh, use, promotional use mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Um, and you can get away with that when it really is that, but you know, when once you get into the commercial realm, like you, you can. I mean, the bottom line is, if you're not going to create your own source material, then um, you have to be prepared to pay whoever created it. Right. You know, I I work with. Mm -hmm. I work with um, George Clinton, and. Um, his granddaughter's Candy Apple Red, and um, they're really sensitive to the notion of publishing because George Clinton's like the most sampled, not, if not first, the second most sampled, mm -hmm. you know, artist in history. Right. And for the most part, hasn't been paid for any of it. I know, that sucks, man. Yeah. And so, I mean, not to kind of, kind of weigh that down, it's kind of, but, you know, I... I I love the innovation that comes from sampling, and, and, and on my way in, I, I was in a lift, and the, and the driver was playing this Spotify uh, playlist called um, Jazz Vibes, okay. and a lot of it was just like like jazzy loops, mm -hmm. you know, with like hip-hop beats. It was kind of Jay Dilla. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, okay. We looked a little Indian kid, yeah. you know, East Indian guy. Mm -hmm. I was just like... I remember in the summer of 1980, when I was working in, in for New York, mm -hmm. uh, the city of New York, I would go around to all these different um, job sites. And it was my job to make sure that the students, the high school students, were getting a job training experience. Right. And I stumbled upon these parties in Brooklyn and the Bronx and stuff, mm -hmm. and I'd come in on Monday, and they'd be like, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to this party in the Bronx, in the park, and it was cool. And they were like, you like that hip-hop stuff? And I was just like... Yeah, what are you talking about? What's that's your... where it started. Yeah, man. I was yeah. like, oh, see, I'm getting told. Yeah, that's where I'm from. I'm from I, the Bronx. For the Bronx? Yeah. Where in the Bronx? 161st in Morris and uh, 150 West Burnside. I'm not sure if you're familiar with I am. I know 161st in Morris. South Bronx. Yes. South Bronx. South Bronx. Mm -hmm. South, South, South Bronx. Bronx. Yeah, KRS, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, being in New York was like, you know, it was inspiring. And, um, but, you know, Innovation through sampling and, and um, you know, turntablism and things of that nature, it's all part of it. You just have to figure out how, how to make it make sense for the content creators. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that, man. I just think it, it, it's crazy because I feel artists should get paid for their music being sampled. But as an artist, you know, who's aspiring as well, mm -hmm. you kind of probably not working with the funds that they may be asking Absolutely. for. So you tend to find the loopholes. Like sure. There was a loophole at, at one point where you, if you sample less than seven seconds, right. you don't have to get clearance, and a lot of artists were doing that. Right. Or you can just ask any producer, you see this beat, I like it, make it sound like this, but not quite, right. so we ain't got to worry about it. You know, and boom. So, right. But it's like, the the, I think the importance of a sample, this is you, by the way. Oh, it's not deep. Okay. Just... If you want me, I'll turn, I'll turn it off. No, that's all good. I was just making sure yeah, it no, wasn't I important. It. I appreciate that. But yeah, so, um, no, I noticed that, um, damn, I lost my train of thought. In regards to sampling, yeah, I think the beauty of it is the, um, not, I, I want to use a specific word, the familiarity mm -hmm. of it. You know, when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's that old song. Oh, they killing it. Yeah, because right. they remind you, because it attracts you like that. So I think that's important to keep in a sample. Um, you know, but again, that will require some clearance if you're trying to take it to a grand scale, stuff like that. The, there's always workarounds, there's always rules, 
and they say rules may be broken, et cetera, et cetera. But the, I mean, I, I there are so many examples of people who have sampled and people didn't know where the original sample came from. And so, you know, you're saying the notion of familiarity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, okay, that's true, but how about you're, if you're in a position where the sample is prominent and people don't know where it came from? So, I'm, so mm -hmm. I mean, I just went to the Beyonce and Jay-Z concert, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Amazing. Mm -hmm. 55,000 people in the Rose Bowl just blew my mind. I, I've ne I'd never... I mean, I've been to big concerts, but that was like really something yeah. crazy. But speaking of crazy, um, I remember we had a big debate in um, in one of the committees, the recording county committees, um, when Crazy in Love came out. Mm -hmm. Because the vast majority of people did not know that all that intro and horn work mm -hmm. was nothing but a sample of a Shy Light song. Okay. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right. Uh, Ba -da -ba -ba -da -da. That came from a Shylights record. Okay. And when we played the record, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I just I fell out. Anyway, that's one of the great things about digging into crates is mm -hmm. finding these obscure things that people don't know about and kind of putting them in a new context and and creating using a sample as just part of your toolkit. Right. You know? And the art of sampling is then what begets to be rewarded there was a time when if there was a sample in the song mm -hmm. it wasn't eligible for a songwriting Grammy wow and they've changed that rule because now people understand there is an art of sampling exactly you know and it's part of contemporary songwriting mm -hmm. so um, which I think was great I thought that was a great change yeah because mostly everything now is uh, there's not one song I, I can't name off the top of my head that wasn't sampled by a James Brown or Quincy Jones music you know so yeah, there's a lot. There's a there's definitely a lot, and you got to remember there's there's also two different sides of that. There's the recording, mm -hmm. but then there's the song. Mm, the okay. song is one asset, and the recording is another. Doesn't necessarily mean that the sample belongs to the song. It may only belong to the recording. Mm. So you kind of have to have to know where wh what it is. It's a, is it production mm -hmm. or is it song? song. Right. Yeah. Huh. Makes sense, man.